Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. PopTech has been catalyzing social impact for two decades via its renowned fellows program, incubated initiatives, thought-provoking salons and conferences. The PopTech 2017 conference takes place October 19th to 21st. You can book tickets now and find out more information at poptech.org. I'm very pleased today to introduce Toby Norman. Toby is co-founder and CEO of Simprints, a non-profit tech company from the University of Cambridge that's building an affordable, secure, rugged, open-source fingerprint system that works in the world's toughest settings. An estimated 1.5 billion people, the majority of them living in Asia and Africa, struggle to access basic services and rights due to an ability to prove their identity. Simprints is developing open-source software and biometric hardware to break this identification bottleneck. So thank you very much, Toby, for taking the time today to speak to Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs podcast. Yeah, absolute pleasure to be here. Great. So Simprints, can you tell me a little bit about what you do, where the idea came from, and maybe also probably first your, your background and how you ended up in this world of social entrepreneurship? Sure thing. So let me start with my background. Um, so I was born in Switzerland to British parents, but raised in the States. I have been passionate about and working in the field of global health for about 10 years now, um, first at Harvard and more recently at Cambridge. And it was during my doctoral research at Cambridge that we really came across the challenge and eventually the idea that became Simprints. So I was doing PhD field work with BRAC in Bangladesh. It's one of the world's largest NGOs and also one of the world's most successful social enterprises. Um, absolutely fascinating organization. And I was looking at a number of their programs, including their community healthcare programs. So these are female community trained uh, called Shasti Shabikas, community health workers who were doing things like maternal and child healthcare. So going house to house um, in urban slums and rural villages, enrolling pregnant mothers in anti-NNO care programs, and essentially trying to find the stuff that kills mums and kids during pregnancy and childbirth. So looking for things like anemia, preeclampsia, so on and so forth. And it was during the course of this PhD field work and also looking and working with some of my colleagues in the global healthcare space, but one of the most challenging problems we constantly faced was accurate patient identification and tracking. So if you take antenatal care programs, so you're trying to see a mom multiple times before delivering childbirth for healthcare services, um, but that mom, particularly the poorest of the poor, has no birth certificate, you know, no formal national or government issued ID, often cases no consistent healthcare records. And so linking them to a consistent healthcare record over time and really making sure that they've been seen, you know, with four antenatal care visits before delivery was incredibly difficult. People's names would be spelled in different ways. Uh, they might not know their exact date of birth. And so when you as a health worker trying to see, has this mom really been seen four times? And am I able to track her across the course of her care and keep that continuity of care? It was really tough to do. And as I talked to my colleagues in different areas in international development, uh, whether it's finance, whether it's education, uh, whether it's distribution of aid and humanitarian relief, 
actually turned out this problem was pretty universal. You know, in fact, the World Bank estimates that globally 1.1 billion people lack any formal identification, and it was a huge challenge for the NGO sector. So that, I think, was how I got into this space, and that was the challenge that really led to Simprints. Right, absolutely. Now, on the face of it, uh, clearly that's, that, that is a, a really important question, you know, how, how do you identify somebody, how do you track the records? Is there any research that's done that what that actually means? What are the, what, what are the implications of that in, 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 you know, in trying to measure what, 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 what happens when you can't really track information like that? Yeah, so I think there's two sides to it. There's the first side, which is formal identification. And probably the leading researchers in this space um, are Alan Gelb at the Center for Global Development uh, and some of the team at the, the World Bank, specifically the Identity for Development Group. And Alan Gelb in particular has argued that actually in terms of tracking progress towards the SDGs, um, identification is increasingly viewed not just as a, you know, a, a difficulty in tracking progress, but actually fundamentally as a reason a lot of underdevelopment exists. Because if you don't have a formal identity, it's incredibly hard to access basic financial services. It's incredibly hard to access government services. It's hard to en enroll in education or have your education and your diploma validated. And so for many countries in the world, lack of formal identification is, is potentially a big cause of underdevelopment. In fact, it's listed in um, Sustainable Development Goal 16.9, which is a legal identity for all by 2030. So I think that's the first half of the challenge and the first half of the equation. One of the places that we're trying to do a lot of research is that what we sort of think about is the second half of that equation was what does it mean when we're trying to do service delivery? So for example, if you're trying to give vaccinations um, drive through a vaccine campaign, uh, but you can't tell what vaccine the child in front of you has had had previously because they have no consistent vaccine record, no consistent medical health history, no, you know, for example, in the States, a social security number or in the UK, a national insurance number. It's really hard to get that delivery of care right. And so we deliver lower quality services because of it. Um, and there's some research that indicates that some, for example, polio drops, we're giving six to eight times per child just because we're not sure, you know, what vaccines they've had before, which is a huge waste of vaccinations and similar supplies in global health and international development. So I think those are the two sides of the, the challenge that something like Simprints is trying to solve. Fascinating. Fascinating. And why, why has the problem not been solved? before i mean what is the nature of the the challenge it, 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 I, I see very clearly what you're talking about in terms of the implications of that uh, structurally wh why is it uh I mean, clearly this is the status quo in in many of these countries you know that they, they, they just the, the they don't have these structures in place uh but um what have been previous attempts to explore and deal with this question yeah, that's a great question. And it's a pretty thorny one because there's a number of factors that play into this. You know, I, I think if we step aside from just the infrastructure needed to have national ID programs, and this is a place we're seeing progress now, but it still requires a lot of infrastructure that many countries don't have yet. There's a number of technical challenges that make this quite difficult. One of the obvious, the, the place we started and what we do today is looking at why can't we use biometrics? to solve this challenge, right? There's a number of different types of biometrics like fingerprints, you know, palm vein, iris, facial recognition. Why couldn't we use one of these technologies to solve this identity bottleneck 
and in both improved service delivery and also make progress towards legal and formal identities. And that's exactly where we began our work at Simprints. We basically never intended to be, you know, a nonprofit technology company. We were just researchers, uh, global health workers trying to solve a problem. We bought some off the shelf biometric technology that was on the market and we tried using it, uh, particularly in, in Bangladesh. And we discovered that despite this seeming to be the right answer to the problem, technically there were huge obstacles to this working. In particular, we were looking at fingerprints, which is still in terms of bang for your buck in terms of accuracy. So in terms of accuracy for cost, um, but still the most effective biometric out there. But all of the technology on the market was designed for, you know, soft Western fingerprints. When in fact, the types of patients we were working with had scarred, damaged, worn fingerprints from working 20 years in the fields or 10 years as day laborers in inner cities. Um, particularly with women, we saw a lot of thermal burns on their fingertips from lifting hot cooking pots and open fires. And during our time at Cambridge, we actually collected, hand collected 135,000 fingerprint images um, from Benin, from Zambia, from Nepal and Bangladesh. Still, I think one of the largest studies in this area on developing web fingerprints. And what our research showed was that kind of the existing state of biometric technology was deeply inadequate for making this type of accurate identification possible. And so I think some of those technical challenges, a big part of the reason that the needle has not moved as far or as fast as it should on this topic. Right. That's very interesting. Now, when did you think, well, that, that, that we could do something here? Uh, so you, this was a challenge you came across. You were getting uh, confirmation that this was pervasive. When did you become committed and how did that go about in terms of actually getting off the ground with, with, with Simprints? Sure. So I think we've been, I've been thinking about this issue since 2012. Um, I was really lucky to pull together a group, wonderful group of people around me who became the co-founding team of Simprints. And we really got moving on the idea in 2014. Uh, and we were doing, as I mentioned, some of the big research trials in developing countries. We were also starting to talk to partners and understand what is the technical landscape that we could plug into where are the biggest bottlenecks and who are the, the partners on the ground who could really benefit from working on this technology. And then when it was in 2015, we decided to take the plunge, uh, turn down jobs in, in the corporate sector and other places um, to do this as a full-time uh, technology startup. It was a little bit of a terrifying moment. I think for many of us, you know, people were headed to much safer jobs at, um, at McKinsey and, and Facebook and other places. But I'm really glad we did, because from 2015 to 2017, it's been a heck of a ride, and we certainly haven't looked back. All right. Sounds like quite an adventure. Um, and, and so you, you, you made this commitment, um, but did, when did you think uh, that you had a solution, or where were you in terms of coming up with a solution that you, 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 you thought would work? Yeah, sure. So it was an iterative process. I think we thought of the concept and really had the first prototypes all the way back in 2014. We did a really big chunk of research um, from 2014 to about 2016, rigorously looking at what does it take to do accurate biometric identification at the front lines. And this is complex because this meant that we actually had to build from scratch a hardware biometric scanner, uh, a fingerprint scanner, specifically something that was mobile, wireless, rugged, waterproof, shockproof, and really designed, you know, by and for 
frontline community healthcare workers. It also meant we needed to get build software matching um, and extraction algorithms that were suited for this context that could deal with the scarred and worn fingerprints that we were talking about. Um, and then build all of the architecture around that, including the ability to move that data safely and securely. And thinking through how is this going to plug into the existing, you know, digital international development architecture? Yes, absolutely. I can imagine that um, whatever about something like that working in, in London or New York, um, one can, can uh, presumably major challenges uh, in, in terms of, you know, ability to plug into uh, whatever kind of networks there are at all. Um, I, I mean, how, how, how big a challenge was that? It's a huge challenge. I mean, we're lucky in some ways because the sort of the digital healthcare, what some people call mobile healthcare space, and really digital international development or ICT for development sector, um, has learned a lot over the past 10 to 15 years and has made huge progress. And there are now some platforms that are literally used by NGOs and governments reaching millions of people every single day. But what that meant for us, it was really important that we didn't rebuild the wheel. You know, we didn't just create a new app for international development, but instead actually we build a plugin that allows these existing tools, you know, whether they're clinic tools, whether they're frontline mobile tools, a plugin that allows them to do biometric identification of their patients or of their beneficiaries on the front line. And that is, in many ways, a much bigger challenge. And it's really important that you get interoperability right. It's really important you get data privacy and data security right. It's really important that you also think about how does this work as a social enterprise? How do you actually potentially form a revenue-driven business in the sector of international development global health? And those are all big challenges. And I won't pretend we've solved all of them, but we've made a lot of headway. Yeah, sounds phenomenally uh, challenging very complex on many different levels. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the, the business side of it? You've set yourselves up as a uh, non-profit. Um, that, that's your business model. Uh, how did you get there and what was your thought process behind that decision? Sure. So we decided, and we, we thought pretty long and hard about this, we decided to structure as a non-profit organization, I think really for two reasons. First, for the founding team, this was just a personal decision. It was kind of a flag we wanted to plant in the ground about how we were going to approach this issue, what our interests in this space were. And second, nonprofit has allowed us to, I think, really build a lot of trust with our key partners, who are typically other NGOs, other governments, or other socially minded businesses. And so that has been hugely helpful for us and allowed us to form a lot of partnerships that I'm, I'm not sure would have formed at the same speed or size if we had gone the other route. That said, I want to be totally clear that although we're structured as a nonprofit, we think about ourselves and we run like a high growth tech startup. And so we're very clear on the team that our goal is financial sustainability. We have high targets in terms of how we actually land sales on specific projects, allowing us to do our work. We, it's important for us that we have strong commercial and operational discipline. And really, we think if you're going to solve a challenge of this scale and this magnitude, you need to find a model that can have that type of scale and that type of growth. And really critically, create the right feedback loop. So at the end of the day, we're accountable to people who are using our technology, and this technology really has to work. We're not just storytellers, um, you know, spending the next 10 years of our lives making a good pitch, but not accountable to the results we deliver on the ground. Well, very interesting. I spoke to Kevin Barnblatt recently from Fast Forward, who's a very strong believer in the, the power of technology nonprofits and Accelerator. I don't know whether you're familiar with the work they do 
in Silicon Valley, but it's a non-profit accelerator, tech accelerator. Very interesting discussion about, you know, the ways in which non non-profits can be just as rigorous and uh, successful and commercial in a sense as, 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 as you know, for profit, um, but without the uh, issue of, of having to, you know, generate returns for external investors. Um, which is which is interesting. I guess an important question in here is is this issue of scale that and this question of interoperability in the sense that you could see something like this working in Benin or some small area where you 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 can map out what the what the networks are, the technology, and and and, and plug into that. What was your vision for the scale of your operations? And can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think we knew the scale of the challenge is huge. As I mentioned, you know, 1.1 billion people without identification is estimated by the World Bank. That's nearly one in every seven people on the planet. So there's no doubt the scale of the problem is massive. How you solve a problem of that magnitude uh, is a really difficult, really, really difficult question. So I think one of the approaches that we've taken that so far seems to be allowing us to grow very quickly is to make sure that we don't build a new solution from scratch, but instead we plug into platforms that are already reaching thousands and in some cases millions of people. So if you look at, for example, um, some of the market leaders in the mobile healthcare space, uh, like Comcare by Tamaki, or if you look at the tools that governments and ministries of health are adopting, things like OpenMRS or DIHS2, you know, these tools are achieving massive scale. And so for Simprints, our our goal and the way we work is to plug into those systems and essentially build contracts and build partnerships with players who are implementing those systems to reach a lot of people really quickly. And we're still very early in that journey. You know, we're just over two and a half years old. Um, we're very lucky now we work with six terrific partners globally, uh, including Demagi, who I mentioned, also including UNICEF, working with a team called Watsi, and we're still working with BRAC, uh, the world's largest NGO. So we're working with some fantastic partners. We've got a long way to go on this front, but our theory of change in terms of how we reach a lot of people really fast uh, is by working with the architecture that exists out there and leveraging that to go further. Well, right, absolutely. And that, the heart of this question, I guess, is also a question of what is it that you uniquely do? What is it that is really distinctive and unique about Simprints? Uh, obviously, you need various interfaces. You need to be able to work with other technologies. Have, is that a straightforward question? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, the tempting answer is always yes. <laughs> yes. I, I think in real life, for a lot of social entrepreneurs, the real answer is no. If I was going to distill it, I would probably pull out three pieces. I think the first is technical, right? So Simprints is in the position where fortunate to have a great team of engineers and researchers who I think have developed a technology that previously has not existed in the world. Um, by the pretty large studies we've done, it's 228% more accurate um, with damaged and worn fingerprints uh, than the existing technologies on the biometric market. So I think that is one part of the challenge. But anyone who tells you that, you know, just a technical USP alone is enough to solve a problem in the social sector, I think isn't being honest. I think the other two things that we do that have allowed us so far that make us stand out. The second is really focusing on user-centered design for frontline, frontline users, mobile operators, particularly community healthcare workers and similar. There's a lot of people who do great design in the space, 
we're in a tricky position because we're doing that design both in terms of physical things, hardware, but also mobile digital software and cloud architecture. So that's a pretty big technology stack. But I think we've been able to leverage some really amazing design teams to build something, the, frankly, the first on the market biometric technology that's genuinely designed for frontline healthcare workers. And that makes a huge difference. And the third, like we just talked about, is, is the commercial model. You know, selling and working um, to the NGO and social sector is actually quite tough. The way that this market operates, for example, the way that you structure things like RFPs, grants, the way a lot of the money flows through the NGO sector is not like the way money flows through the private sector. And so people think on different timelines operationally. They think differently in terms of contracts. Uh, and there's a disconnect between the people who are paying for solutions and the people who are the ultimate beneficiaries of those solutions. So all of those economic dynamics make this really hard. And we've had to work very hard to build a commercial model that's designed for that space and makes it work in that space. And I think if you're missing any of those three components, we wouldn't be able to do the work we do. And I think you'd be really headed to headed into trouble if you're trying to solve this challenge. Oh, absolutely. Uh, complex and more complex and layered complexities. Um, uh, quite, a, quite a thing you're doing. Um, uh, you talk a little bit about the commercial model and, and the business model, as you said, you know, non-profit, but also uh, rigorous and with, you know, commercial targets and so forth. Um, and, and, and also, I suppose, um, how important is business experience here? I, I, I guess you're coming from a technology background. Um, how have you found that? I think it's been a huge learning journey for us, you know, because if you think about the journey of the entrepreneur, there's a couple different stages that you typically go through. Uh, so in the early days, we really were storytellers. You know, we were pitchers. We built Simprints off the back of, you know, a 500 pound student business plan competition. And so our skill set was, could we tell a narrative and a story that that's funny? <laughs> yeah. uh, and we had to work at that skill set and gain that. And then I think a little bit further down the line, we suddenly became researchers and grant writers. So we knew there was a challenge to solve here. Um, but now we started needing to do rigorous research, write compelling and pretty long, in many cases, grant applications, write a lot of them uh, until we could start getting our conversion rates a little bit higher. Uh, and that's still a skill we're developing, but that's that's part of it. Whereas I think where we're trying to be at the moment, where we're learning at the moment, is actually a totally different set of skills, which, sorry, a totally different set of skills, which is around sales. You know, as I said, we want to run like a commercial entity and think like a high growth tech startup. And so that means now we're building out a sales funnel and a CRM, and we're thinking about qualifying sales leads and what our conversion rates at different points of that are. And that is a completely different skill set. So it's been a huge learning journey for us, having to learn those different skills in those different places. I'm lucky to work with a really smart and very hardworking team uh, who seem to pick this up, this stuff up so quickly. But I'd certainly be lying if I said it was easy. We've made a lot of mistakes. We are learning constantly and all the time. And I still think we've got a long way to go. Great, great, great. And who's helped you along the way? And, and what insights do you have about about turning uh, uh, an idea into reality and building support in that way. Yeah, so I think two real key sources that have made this happen. Um, the first is the team around this. You know, everyone says people are the most important resource. You hear this as an entrepreneur, you know, a hundred times, and yet still it's a lesson that I seem to be learning and relearning every single day. Um, so I could not do this without my team. They are the most important resource. And I'm frankly, the most important job I have 
is building that team, selecting that team, training that team, and supporting that team, it's critical. Their ability to learn, their ability to work and solve challenges that in many cases haven't been solved before is essential to this journey. So there's nothing more important than that. I think the second place we've also been really fortunate is with sort of the mentors and advise us who have helped us in many cases leapfrog or, or jump past problems that could have taken us a long time to learn a solution to ourselves. And I've seen kind of that, that dynamic, that one-two punch, actually allow us to grow really quickly in areas. If you can find an experienced, thoughtful mentor who's seen the field, has a sense of how things work, and pair them with someone who's high energy, sometimes younger, but highly intelligent, willing to genuinely you know, keep after a problem until it's solved, it's amazing to me how quickly you can build out really strong and rigorous solutions complex and thorny problems. And so that's a, a dynamic that's worked for us well uh, in our growth to date, which has been pretty fast for a small team. And I think it's definitely something we're going to keep doing in the future. Great, great. And, and how about funding? How has that been? And again, uh, any insights? You've talked about ramping up the grant uh, writing process and it's a uh, law of large numbers, I suppose. You need to get the applications out there and then can get them converted. Uh, again, presumably you, 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 you have some background getting research grants as an academic or in an uh, academic type environment, I suppose. Um, what's the experience been? Yeah, so this is always one of the most challenging areas of building a social enterprise. Um, and particularly for us as we're in the middle now of that transition of being a purely grants and philanthropy funded nonprofit um, to a nonprofit that's driven by sales revenue <laughs> has been doubly challenging in that sense. I think we've seen a couple of things. We're very lucky um, with a lot of our early partners who came on board, um, particularly Arm, uh, the semiconductor company, um, who came on board with us with something called Saving Lives at Birth, which is Gates Foundation, USAID, Grand Challenges Canada, DFID, a few of those major institutional funders. And that really powered us through the R&D phase of our growth as a technology company. Because for the first two years, we were just doing research. You know, we were not on the market, we were trying to build the technical solution needed for this challenge. Uh, now, as we get deeper into that, we need to sort of pair that skill, that ability to raise money from sort of those and similar sources, um, including increasingly wonderful foundations like Autodesk Foundation and Draper Richards Kaplan, from actual sales, from clients in the NGO and social sector. And so learning how to build out that sales funnel, and we're very fortunate to be um, to have on our client list folks like UNICEF or folks like Watsi. Learning how you build out an organization that can do that and actually build contracts and land contracts in the social impact sector, that's been a whole different set of skills. Absolutely, absolutely. Any advice for others on this journey, uh, particularly with respect to the fundraising side of things? Yeah, a couple of things. I would always look closely at sort of what your colleagues are, particularly those who you think are sort of close to you in terms of both age, but also experience, sector and others. I have been stunned by how willing many of our peers have been, you know, willing to help us. And in some cases, even sharing grant applications, sharing introductions to funders. It's been really impressive to me. And this is something I think is quite unique about the social enterprise space. It's certainly not universal. Occasionally, I'm, I'm disappointed. It's tempting to be competitive and it's tempting to be sort of secretive and insular. But for every time that happens, I there are three other teams who are so open and so helpful 
really blows me away. So I would reach out to your your colleagues in this space, learn as much as you can from them because they're going through the exact same challenge. And so, many so, so is that literally just emailing people, say, even somebody who's working in a similar area as you, saying this is what I'm looking at, this is what we're doing, where some similar uh, questions, themes, would love to catch up and that kind of thing, just actually cold contacting? Yeah, uh, I'm really surprised how often that works. Also attending events, meeting people in person, starting to build those relationships, build those networks is really important. And, you know, and being authentic with people. I've emailed a lot of folks who, frankly, should were way above us um, in terms of level and experience and just said, I'm passionate about this. This is the problem I'm trying to solve. I have no idea what I'm doing. Um, could you give me some advice? Uh, and I am amazed at how many of those people who I never think would email back actually end up do emailing back and we jump up on the phone and then hopefully I get to meet them at a future conference. And that, that to me is very inspiring and that's really impressive and it's part of the thing I love about being in the social enterprise sector. Absolutely. Uh, it's something I hear again and again. Um, and, and there are challenges too. And this question of not reinventing the wheel is, I think, a really important one. Um, you, pilot studies. Now, clearly, uh, your research background uh, evidence-based uh, approaches to solving these problems. How important are pilot studies and any advice? Could talk a little bit about your experience. I know with Brack and John Hopkins, uh, Global is it M Health Initiative. Um, talk up a little bit about where that fits in and, and what your experience has been. Sure. So um, we think about pilot studies in a couple of different ways. Uh, some of the ones you mentioned, for example, our early work with Johns Hopkins University as well as BRAC was really around research pilots. And those were critical. Those allowed us to collect data um, that let us build the technology we have today. So we have spent, you know, hundreds of hours sitting in clinics, um, collecting scarred and damaged worn fingerprints in order to build hardware and software that's capable of actually working in this context. And so I think those research pilots have been essential particularly if you're thinking about a technical play, you have a real commitment, you know, not just a, a financial or operational obligation, but I think an ethical obligation to make sure that this tech really works at the front lines in the field, because pretty soon, sooner than you think, people are going to be counting on it. The second place is thinking about pilots, you know, now you're actually, you're out there, you've got a product on the market, and those pilots and that testing with early users is really important. And I think sometimes pilots get a bad rap in this space. There's certainly concerns about doing too many pilots or too, too many small scale things. Anyone can make a gold plated pilot that's definitely going to work with enough money, enough effort. Uh, and I think what some people have nicknamed in our mobile healthcare field, pilotitis, you know, the doing too many pilots almost as a disease. It's definitely a phenomenon and it's a challenge. That said, I don't see any path to scale that does not involve a progression of testing because there are so many variables you're going to be looking at, uh, not just technical variables, but also operational variables, economic variables. There's a ton that you need to get right before you can genuinely start scaling anything. And so I think those early pilots that we've done with our colleagues, both with BRAC in Bangladesh, but also possible in Nepal, Watsi in Uganda, Kohisu in Kenya, um, soon in northern Nigeria with UNICEF and EPRI, those add huge value in terms of figuring out how do you actually build something that's going to scale, not just technically, but operationally and economically. Right, right. Underlying this, I guess, is this idea of, well, at the heart of it is innovation or willingness to, is, is, is the necessity of, uh, well, I suppose, taking risks, but also 
uh, asking questions and being willing to, you know, uh, discount particular ideas uh, that they don't work and that kind of idea of testing, learning and uh, failing along the way. And I know that in, in the social enterprise space, it's a bit more challenging, um, you know, failing with a new cola or something is one thing, but failing with a product where people's lives are at stake potentially uh, is another. Can you talk about attitudes to innovation in that sense and willingness to embrace failure and how you think about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, at its heart, innovation, you're trying to do something that hasn't been done before. And so failure is part and parcel of that journey. But it's tough because you have huge ethical obligations to make sure that when you fail, you know, it is doing no harm. And that's really difficult. I think one of the attitudes and things that have allowed our team to, to do what we've done so far is thinking really hard about feedback loops in particular. So how do you, particularly when we're a technology company based in the West, and we have partners uh, who are in South Asia, who are in East Africa and West Africa, who aren't just far from us, but also very far and very different from each other. You know, the experience and the needs of a Bangladeshi farmer in Rangpur, very different from, you know, an urban healthcare worker in a, in a slum in Kenya. And so building technology and building a, an actual enterprise that's going to work and succeed in those contexts requires a lot of innovation. And I think what we've seen make that work more successfully is very tight and very fast feedback loops. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with kind of agile, agile development methodology, so on and so forth. Uh, but this is even tougher to do in the social enterprise space. You know, you're not just building out a website, getting user feedback, and then rolling out changes the next day. If you're gonna make changes, you're going to be impacting hardware, software that's very far away, potentially offline, training for users who are very different from you, don't even speak the same language and might have very different cultural norms. A couple of tip, tips and tricks that we found. One, there's no substitute for sort of being with your users and spending long periods of time with them. Not just short, you know, couple hour long focus groups, but genuinely being there for days, weeks, even months on end, listening to them, talking to them. Absolute best feedback loop in the world. That said, it's very hard to scale, particularly a technology, doing that type of feedback loop. So we found things that even establishing, such as establishing user champions in the field, who are kind of our champions for going out and getting feedback, and then often emailing us that feedback. For example, you know, all of our user champions in our various projects, they actually they have mobile phones, low-cost smartphones. And so when I want to roll out a new feature, I can request someone just takes a video of users using that feature in the field, and they can usually get me an email, low resolution, granted, but a, a video of users generally using the fields within 72 hours. That is a much faster feedback loop than every time we want to roll out a new piece of technology or a new feature, having to send an expensive, you know, Western field team to go, to go be in the field for a couple of weeks. And I think thinking about how we do those feedback loops deliberately and establishing them in our work has been really critical to at least to our innovation journey in this space. Right. That's very interesting. Very, very good advice. That, just something that occurred to me. What about st the, the status quo? You, you, you arrive at a situation where things uh, operate in a certain way. Um, th there are problems, there are challenges, but somehow this, the, the, the ecosystem or the system, you know, operates. And, and, and there are forces in play often that, that, that support the way things are. Have you, how have you found that? Has that been the case or is it more that people have just been so hungry for what you're offering that uh, they've jumped at it? Can you talk a little bit about that, the, the, the balance of those? 
Yeah, that's a great question and very nuanced. There's a lot of complexity in this space. And, you know, let's be honest, when you're doing anything new, um, you're not always going to have every person as your champion. There are some people who benefit enormously from the status quo. I think we try and think about it is, is, is the status quo genuinely good? And in which case, we're potentially introducing technology that, frankly, isn't solving a real problem. And that, I think, is very different from a status quo where, look, things aren't working well. This is really not in the best users of our end beneficiaries, our patients. But there are people who are benefiting from the way the status quo exists currently, uh, and they're going to be resistant to seeing changes. And so I'll, I can give kind of two examples or, or two thoughts in those different directions. The first is making sure that you do no harm and you don't introduce things that aren't needed. It is very tempting, I think, particularly with technological solutions, to become that solution that's looking for a problem to solve. And, you know, a great idea from someplace else that people try and push or drop in to a place where it doesn't solve real challenges. This is one of the reasons why I think trying to be revenue driven uh, as a social enterprise, even as a nonprofit social enterprise, is very powerful. Because if you're not solving a real problem, the market isn't going to financially support it. And I don't think that's always true if you're just selling a dream or selling a vision or, or selling a good pitch to funders. Because like we talked about earlier, you know, the needs and the, the things that drive those stakeholders versus the needs of end users or end beneficiaries aren't always perfectly aligned. I think they're trying to be, but in real life, that alignment isn't always perfect. And so I think revenues are a powerful way to make sure you're solving a real problem uh, even if you're working in a tough space like ours where people don't have a lot of money to solve it. The second challenge around, you know, breaking the status quo when it's in the best interest of end patients or end beneficiaries, I, th I think it's pretty hard too. For example, one of the great advantages of biometrics is that it allows verification. So to really know for certain that a health worker has visited every household in the catchment area, or to be 100% sure that the person who's received, you know, a microfinance transfer or health insurance transfer is the right person claiming that benefit. And a couple of our projects at the moment, verification is a huge value add. You know, it allows people to build, for example, our work with Watsi in Uganda, really exciting universal healthcare financing models that wouldn't work if you couldn't be really sure that the people who are claiming um, health insurance are the people who were originally enrolled, who originally bought it in the first place. Biometrics is a great way to make sure that that's actually the right person. You've got good verification. But there's not always going to be everyone who's fully on, on board with it. Some people benefit from the status quo staying the way it is. If you look, for example, in the space of aid distribution, you know, the Indian government loses billions every year to food and oil subsidies that disappear through middlemen who essentially submit fake lists of beneficiaries. And a lot of the work you've seen them do recently in biometrics, such as the Adhar and UID initiative, is really trying to eliminate that type of corruption, eliminate that type of graft, so that you actually have genuine service delivery that reaches real people. And there's been a lot of pushback there. I think some for good, good reasons, and I think some for bad reasons. That hasn't been an easy fight. And so, like we said at the beginning, it's not just getting the tech right. It's getting all those other factors, including the political will, to make a change. Yes, absolutely. And that'll be a final note to just to, I'd be interested in getting your perspective on the security issues. And I know that's been the case in India. You know, there are big questions about, uh, I guess, any massive data gathering exercise like this. Um, how do you think about that? It's absolutely critical. I mean, you just look at the ransomware attacks that have been happening recently. You cannot ignore 
this piece of the problem. And I think we think about three layers in it. The first is actually privacy. You know, it's not just the, the physical security, but have you genuinely thought through um, what data you need to collect? And are the people who are giving their biometric or giving personal health information, have they actually consented to that, that process? Uh, and so we're working very hard in this area, particularly work with an amazing human rights lawyer um, by the name of Ben Hooper, who's helped us think through uh, sort of our, our privacy and data policies, who has made sure that we have consent as part of every single workflow on every single project. And that, that's actually translated not just to local language, but into simple legal language that people can understand and is meaningful, you know, not just endless pages of, of jargon that everyone clicks yes on, but never actually reads. And that's, that's a tough challenge. The second layer you need to get right is security. It's super important. Um, we rely heavily on Google Firebase for our security architecture because they are, I think, frankly, the best in the world when it comes to moving data around in low bandwidth, high latency environments securely. So this is not an insurmountable challenge. A lot of people are doing it in different spaces, but the way to do it is to look at the best practice in the industry, figure out who's actually solved this and go to them. You know, make sure that you've got robust encryption, robust security architecture. These are really, really important. And the final thing, and I think the place where Simpsons is doing more and more work is advocacy. You know, we are a young, early stage social enterprise trying to do big things. There's a lot of folks globally collecting a lot of data in different contexts. And so if you go into, a, I'll make a plug for our website. We've put um, white papers out on privacy and security standards. We pushed hard on a lot of our partners, um, including the World Bank's ID4D group, um, the World Health Organization's Be Healthy Mobile Initiative. We're pushing our partners hard to take these issues seriously. Think about what the standards for privacy and security are. Because just because our beneficiaries are some of the poorest of the poor does not mean the standard should be any lower than for anyone else anywhere in the world. And that to us is really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and looking to the future, the next few years, what, what are your aspirations here, Toby? Well, we've got pretty big ambitions. Um, you know, as a team, our, our goal is to reach 200,000 beneficiaries by the end of this year, a million beneficiaries by the year after that. And in five years' time, to really solve this identification bottleneck, because it affects literally is over a billion people worldwide, there is a huge amount of work to be done. We don't pretend that we're going to do it all by ourselves, but we are trying to be part of and build a consortium of partners who are, who are going to genuinely solve it. And so that's where we're going. It's not easy. It's not simple. I think there's a lot of things that you need to get right along the way. But if you stay focused and you get a great team of people around you, I think we can go pretty far. Fascinating, fascinating. Now, it just occurs to me that the, this question of, of um, identification and this question of economic exclusion or economic inclusion is, is, is really important in, in the context of the SDGs. And, you know, it seems to be the case that economic growth is just such a powerful force to lift people from poverty. And presumably, I'm just wondering about the SDG side of things because it, it's giving a pretty powerful framework that I think more more organizations are, are, are working with and, and using. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure thing. So as I mentioned, you know, SDG 16.9, which is a legal identity for all by 2030, you know, actually encapsulates, uh, encapsulates identification as a target within the SDGs themselves. But frankly, identification runs across multiple SDGs, right? It's going to be essential if we're going to hit our targets when it comes to financial inclusion. It's going to be essential if we're going to hit our targets on healthcare, even on things like education, 
there's a number of areas where actually knowing that we've really reached people with critical services and figuring out who we haven't reached is going to be essential. Because if you think about it like an equation, you know, a numerator and denominator, winning the fight against poverty isn't just about the number of people you've reached, you know, the top of that equation, it's also about the number of people you failed to reach. And what does it take to bring that gap down to zero? And so we think about that as the challenge that breaking this identification bottleneck, if we can break this identification bottleneck, that's the challenge we're going to be able to help solve. Fascinating. And I wish you the very best success with this uh, great, great uh, adventure and, and, and all the work that you're doing, Toby. And thank you so much for taking the time today to share the hard-won insights and uh, uh, experience on your journey. Yeah, absolute pleasure. And thanks so much for having me today. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.